Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Y'all are in for a real treat with this episode. I had the sheer privilege of interviewing an incredibly brave soul, the one and only Jane Elliott, internationally known teacher, lecturer, diversity trainer, anti-racism advocate, recipient of the National Mental Health Association Award for Excellence, former third grade school teacher who created the famous Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes exercise for her class on April 5th, 1968, the day after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I laughed, I teared up, but mostly I sat in awe of this woman's courage and her intense fight to end racism starting with children, her own students, decades ago. Jane is still going strong in her 80s with a mission of dismantling the lie that there is more than one race. She is firm that in order to uproot racism, we have to see this lie for what it is and move forward toward a common understanding and truth that there is only one race. She is known worldwide. Her work has been used worldwide. She sat down with Atlanta MC Killer Mike and T.I. As a matter of fact, I went on his Instagram and he had a picture with her and said, got a chance to spend the day with my Woman Crush Wednesday, Jane Elliott, yesterday in Chicago. She is truly a brilliant, amazing, kick-ass person. I've never met anyone who's given the kind of brutally honest, rational, logical, intellectual insight on racism and race relations based on fact as she did. She's a true gem, a real-life American hero. Most recently, she was a guest on Jada Pinkett Smith's Red Table Talk, and now she's on Roots of the Spirit. Please be advised that this episode includes the N-word in two instances within a historical context. I have nothing more to say except y'all, 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 you are in for a real treat this episode. Let's start the show. Jane, it is an absolute honor to have you on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. Thank you so much for joining me as my special guest. Well, you're most welcome and thank you for inviting me. I love being able to provide my listeners with insight into how I became acquainted with my guests. As it relates to you, I was very well aware of you and your work from a very early age. And when I say that, I mean probably as a teenager. And fast forward decades later, I was over the moon to learn that my mother, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, was invited by our friend, mutual friend, Dr. Todd Allen, who's a professor at Messiah College. He had invited you and my mother to speak to students at, you might have to help me fill in the blank with the actual university that you spoke of, but in essence, you ended up speaking together, I think a year ago. I was so delighted to meet that woman, and I was so absolutely honored to be in the same room with her. Good Lord, the woman is brilliant. That's so cool. Dr. Allen sent me a picture of you two hugging, and you both looked so like lit up and elated. It was beautiful. We haven't had the same experience, but we have had some of the same history, which is ugly for both of us. Neither neither of us should know what we know. Neither of us should have experienced what we've experienced. 
and we have to work in such a way that our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren won't have that experience or have or know what we know. Absolutely. In regards to my podcast, I created Roots of the Spirit podcast as a platform to have honest and brave conversations about identity, race, racism, and social justice. I have a passion to galvanize change and do my best to uproot racism through storytelling, education, and the arts. I just love hearing people's journey to the work that they do and going all the way back to childhood. Can you tell me about where you were born and raised and anything you'd like to share about your family roots? Oh my goodness. I was born on a 160-acre farm, real poor poor dirt farm in Northeast Iowa, one of seven children to a Catholic mother and a Baptist father. My Catholic mother's parents disowned her because she married out of the church at the age of 15, and my Baptist father's mother hated my mother, so that I was raised in a really interesting environment in which we didn't talk about religion because my father refused to fight about it, and my mother was tempted to fight about it, but depended totally on my father since her relatives wouldn't have anything to do with her. So she had to keep a lid on it and bite her tongue, and that she did that quite well. And my father simply didn't discuss religion. He said, I don't have to go to church. I can pray out there behind that plow. Now leave me alone, goddammit. And that's what, and that's what she did. Uh, he, he refused to discuss religion because he thought that he and what she had experienced, neither of them, was really honest. And he was a totally honest man. He would say to us, if you're going to lie, don't lie to me. And so... I never lied to my father after one time, and that taught me I'll never do that again. He didn't whip me for it, but he should have. But he just laughed and said, well, it's obvious that what's going on here, and walked away and let me feel bad. But he taught us not to judge a book by its cover, and he taught us to tell the truth. He would say, a man's word is his bond. If you give your word, you keep it. And that's the reason he stayed married to my mother, because he had given his word, so he stayed married to my mother. It was tough. Seven kids on that hard scrabble farm. During the Depression, I was born in 1933, which was when the Depression was, it was getting better. Not, not good, not good at all. But because I was born in 1933 and because Franklin Roosevelt came to power the same year that I was born, as did Adolf Hitler, I had a, a unique upbringing because the kinds of things that happened from 1933 till 1945 were the kinds of things that have only happened once in history, and they really did. That, that Second World War was in there at the end of the Depression, and the Depression, of course, was ended in the United States by our entrance into the Second World War. Franklin Roosevelt knew exactly what he was doing. He had to do something about the Depression, and in order to bring this country back economically, he had to go, he had to go into war. And he knew that war was coming, and he deliberately, deliberately, maneuvered us into that situation to restore that the country from the de after the Depression. So that my upbringing was very strange. I went to a, a one-room schoolhouse, kindergarten to eighth grade, so that I started school at the age of six, and the oldest people in school in that year were the 15-year-olds who hadn't been able to get through eighth gra eight grades without having to stop and take a couple of grades over. So there we were on the farm, on the corner of my father's farm, in a one-room school that my father and his sisters had all gone to school in. Wow. It was really, when I think back on it now, and think of the things we learned and the way all the over-learning that took place. By the time I got to the sixth grade, I knew the sixth grade program 
because I had heard it for seven years. So that going through school was nothing after you listened to what went on with the other classes all day, every day, so that by the time you got to the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, you didn't have to work very hard because you'd learned it all. The overlearning that took place was absolutely remarkable. But the kind of teachers that we had weren't quite so remarkable because it was a, it was a rural school, one room, the bathrooms were out on the edge of the property, the water, we had to bring water from the, from the farms in the area. Each of us had a day when we would have to, the older ones, when we'd have to go to the nearest farm and get a, bring back the water to put in the water cooler. It was heated by a pot-bellied stove. If you were lucky, you got to sit next to the stove. If you weren't, you were in bad trouble because we had to walk from our house, which was over, well, probably a quarter of a mile, over a quarter of a mile from the school. Rain, shine, snow, sleet, whatever. We had to walk to school and walk home from school. I learned a lot about the value of education. I learned a lot about being uncomfortable. I learned a lot about protecting your feet. We'd walk in the snow, and by the time you get to the school, now none of this has anything to do with racism. I realize that. I think that your journey is incredibly important and valuable. Yeah, what you need to know is we didn't have electricity until I was 10 years old. And we never did, as long as I was at home. We never did get running water on the farm. I'm fairly strong because we had to pump water out of a hand pump out beside the house in order to have water for bathing and for cooking and for cleaning and whatever else. We put it in a, we had a, a wooden coal range in the kitchen and there's a reservoir on the end of it and you pump the water out of the well outside the door You carry it in, you pour it into the reservoir and then you'd wait until it heated up enough for you to take water out of it and put it in pan and take it upstairs and take a bath. Well, it definitely creates a strength in you, right? And a resilience because I'm a farm kid myself and I know some of that I can relate to. Um, We did have a hand pump and we had vast land and animals and all of that. I think that growing up on a farm does something to you. Well, it makes you tough, but it also makes you empathetic. It makes you know that there's, that must be. That must not be pleasant, what, what animals who give birth go through. It must not, must not be pleasant what parents who raise children on farms go through keep trying to keep them alive, trying to feed them, trying to keep them warm in the wintertime, and trying to, to light the house when you have no electricity. It was a real struggle for my parents. And they struggled, and they stayed together, and they raised six of the seven children. We were, <laughs> our other our relatives, my mother's, brothers and sisters called us, you'll pardon my French, the dirty little bastards because they considered us bastards because my mother had left the church. So obviously they, my parents weren't really married. They thought they were, but the relatives thought they weren't. And so we were called that as long as I was at home on the farm. And I knew what we were because they let us know constantly. It was interesting. My father, my grandfather, my mother's father told my mother he would never step foot on that place as long as she had married out of the church. And he never did. And I can remember my uncle bringing him out in a car, and my they parked the car just outside the driveway on the road. They wouldn't pull it into the driveway. They parked it on the road. And he'd open the door on the rider's side, and my father in his bib overalls and his work shoes and his boot shirt rolled up to the elbow would walk out there and talk to my grandfather, talk up to my grandfather in that car. Mm. And I used to watch that happen and hate my grandfather because my father shouldn't have had to do that. But my mother would say, go out and talk to him, Lloyd. Lloyd, go out and talk to him. So dad would go out and talk up to that man while that man looked down on him. And my grandfather chewed, chewed tobacco and he would deliberately chew and then spit 
at my father's feet, spit that tobacco at my father's feet. I've never forgotten it. I wish I could forget those things because it makes me think less and less of my mother and her brothers and sisters. I recognize the ignorance of discrimination and prejudice. You describe it as staying with you and seared into your memory. Did that inform the way that you looked at fair and unfair and just looked at the world? Absolutely. And my dad would say to us, a fair thing is a pretty thing and a right wrongs no man. And I didn't know how to punctuate that when I was a kid. I couldn't, I thought he was saying right wrong. There's no man. No, a fair thing is a pretty thing and a right wrongs no man. It may inconvenience you. It may impoverish you, but it won't wrong you. If it's the right thing, it won't wrong you. When I finally grew up and grew away and did the blue-eyed brown-eyed exercise in a third grade classroom in the Riceville school, my father would say to me, are you right? You think you're right? I said, yes. He said, then go ahead. By God, let him complain. If you know you're right, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. And when he saw the first film that was made in my classroom, the first year, I didn't, nobody was going, knew I was going to do the exercise. The second year, that following year, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation filmed it. And I, they sent me a copy of that. And I took it up to the hotel and showed it to my folks. My father and my mother and I were there to watch it. And when it was over, my father, who was probably 60 years old at the time, stood up, took his red handkerchief out of his bib overalls, wiped his eyes and said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. Wow. When people criticize the exercise, I remember my absolutely, absolutely moral father saying, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. He learned when he was 60 from watching those kids in that film that what his father had told him was right and what he had told us was right, but he wished somebody had taught him that there was only one race. That's amazing. His life would have been so much fuller, so much better, if he hadn't had to go along with the idea of four or five different races. There's only one. Oh. After that, I, I didn't care what, I, I could have stopped living at that point because as far as I was concerned, my life had meaning, whether or not anybody else thought so. My dad said he wished somebody had taught him that when he was nine years old. That is so profound. I would love to go back. I understand that you were a school teacher. You were teaching elementary school because the story about how the exercise came about is incredibly intriguing to me. What inspired you to become an educator yourself? I didn't want to. I wanted to be a nurse. But my father said, I'm not going to help you be a nurse. I don't want you walking, wiping old men's butts. If you want to be a teacher, I'll help you because my aunt, his sister, was a teacher. And he said, if you want to be a teacher, I'll help you. So I graduated from high school in May of 1952, and I started going to college at the University of Northern Iowa, which at that time was Iowa State Teachers College, two weeks later because I had to get out and make money. I had to be self-supporting quickly because there were still three kids, three kids or two kids at home. So I went straight from high school straight to college. I didn't go through freshman orientation. I went in and I registered. My sister was going to UNI at the time. So I went in and registered, and my aunt allowed me, asked me if I wanted to live with her at her house, her, her, she and her husband's house in Waterloo, which was a few miles from Cedar Falls. So every morning I, after I registered, I went to my aunt's house, and every morning I'd get up and walk to the bus stop ride the bus over to Cedar Falls, go to school all day, stop and see my sister in her room at the University of Northern Iowa, and then ride the bus home at night. Now, mind you, I walked through the north end of Waterloo, which is the black section. 
And I had no fear. I simply had to get from her house to the bus. It was probably six or eight blocks, at least that. And I walked it alone, 18 years old, every morning and every afternoon. And sometimes at night, if I'd stay at the college for something that we had to do. And I did that for the whole summer. Cities, counties, states, and the federal government set it up so that you have segregation, whether you want it or not. In Waterloo, Iowa, you didn't even dream of trying to rent a house on the west side if you were black. You didn't even dream of going into a business on the west side if you were black. It was just the way it was. Now, people think that's de facto segregation. It is not. People need to realize that the government sets up these years segregation. If you think I'm lying about that, you need to read the book, The Color of Law. I'm reading it actually right now. Is that amazing? It is absolutely astounding. See, you think, you think that what happened in Waterloo was just people, black people just wanted to stay on that side of town. No, they didn't. They had no choice. Yeah. They had no choice. And so they lived the best they could. But people on the west side didn't have, would not, weren't allowed to rent to them, number one. Number two, wouldn't have because they were raised in as ignorant a situation as I was to think that there were four or five different races and you don't mix them. What was it like being white growing up in segregation? It was like a part of, a, we were denied experience. We were denied the right to communicate fully with people who didn't look like us. And if we did, we were treated as badly as those who didn't look like us were being treated. We knew automatically that you dare not communicate with those folks and be seen doing it. Stay in your place. We had a professor, one of the, my first professors, a social studies professor at Iowa State Teachers College said to this group of teacher trainees, when you get into the classroom, you must not teach in opposition to the local mores. The people who are paying your wages through their taxes have the right to have their children learn what they want them to learn. And I thought, well, that's wrong. If you're teaching in a racist society, that means you don't teach against racism. I thought it was wrong, but I didn't. I wasn't foolish enough to stand up and say, Mr. Professor, you are so wrong. Somebody needs to take you out to the woodshed and alter your mind. <laughs> I didn't dare do that. I wanted to pass the course. So I went along to get along until I married a man who ran a national tea store after I got into teaching. And we moved to Waterloo. He was managing a national tea store in Waterloo, and we were going to be transferred. He was being transferred to Fort Dodge. We already had two children, and we were buying our house, and we knew that if we sold the house, we wouldn't be able to afford one when we came back because we knew they would transfer us back because they were, tra they were bringing him up through the ranks so that they were going to make him, you know, a wheel. So we, rent, we put an ad in the paper that we had a house for rent. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Some woman called and said, do you rent to coloreds? And I stopped and I thought, and I can remember what I thought. If we rent this house to a black person, these neighbors, when we get moved back here, these neighbors won't have anything to do with us. And I said to her, this is an all white neighborhood. And she said, okay, thanks and hung up. And I knew exactly what I had done. I had defected to the enemy. I had sworn that I would never go along with racism. And I did. I forced her to make the decision that I should have made. I should have said, no, I can't because of the neighbors. But instead of saying no, I said, 
this is an all-white neighborhood and forced her to make that decision. I'll never forget that, and I'll never do it again. Can you identify where your, and I'm making this, this concept up just in my mind right now, but like racial moral compass came from? I'm just curious about your experience leading up to that. Sorry. From my father. He would say a fair thing's a pretty thing and a right wrong's no man, but... But he that also translated said, to race to you as well as a young person in the thick of a racist society? But you see, we were in Riceville, Iowa. People would say, there's no racism here. In fact, oh my God, I keep, when I talk about these things, I remember things I had forgotten. When, when I did the exercise in, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, the people at the, at the restaurant uptown during the coffee bar in the morning had heard about it. And they said, why is she doing that in Riceville? We, we don't have any racism in Riceville. We don't have any niggers. Now, I'm sorry for that word, but that's exactly what they said. And I could clean it up for today, but I'm talking about yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that those same things are being said in that same restaurant in Riceville, Iowa today. We had no people of color. We had one Jewish person, but he ran a grocery store and he would give people credit. So he was okay, but he was still a Jewish person. So you, you needed to stay away from him unless you needed to buy groceries on credit. But we would have sworn that we weren't racist because, because as they said, there aren't any of those people here, so how can we be racist? <laughs> See, that's, that's one of the very ignorant things that we say in small towns and in neighborhoods in big cities all over the United States of America. As long as there are none of those people here, we can't be racist. Yeah, I've heard that as recent as like a couple of days ago. <laughs> Of course, of course, because we are still conditioning people to the myth of white superiority. Speaking of just the concepts around that race is a social construct, however, we have so much entangled in that concept and we hold dear. Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Race is a social construct is a sentence that we use every time we don't want to discuss what it really is. The idea of four or five different races is a flat-out lie. We don't want to call it a flat-out lie, because that means that white people have been lying to themselves all these years, for 500 years. We don't want to admit that. So we call it a social construct instead of calling it what it is. It's a myth created by people who don't know any better to explain a phenomenon that they can't explain. So they simply have made up the myth of four or five different races. Now, there are 2,500 different skin colors on the face of the earth. Can you think of 2,500 different names for races? (laughs) I concur. I agree. I love it. So myth and lie, those are words that I have to put in my mind because I, I need to adopt that. The people who are talking about social construct are trying to do is trying to dignify the ignorance that we have been expressing for over 500 years. This is ignorance. That is really profound, and I'm going to reframe the way that I think and speak about it. And don't let anybody say to you, I don't know, you know, I don't know your color, I don't know his color, I don't know her color, but I do know this. Black people say to me, well, they don't like me because of the color of my skin. And I say, well, to quote Donald Trump in a different context, that's bullshit. They don't dislike you because of the color of your skin. They dislike you because of the ignorance about skin color. They don't know that if they would trace their DNA back far enough, that part of their DNA came from a country in Africa. Every single person that you talk to. I appreciate you assigning me the National Geographic April 2018 issue. It is so 
thick and thorough <laughs> and right on time and right on point. And, and it's so simple. And it is so absolutely beautiful. And that page of all those different color, skin colors yeah. and the, color, the number on the color wheel under each one of them, if people realize, and of course they don't because we aren't allowed to realize the truth in this country or on, in, on this earth. We aren't allowed to. And with, with Christmas coming, that really irritates me. <laughs> Christmas is coming, and we're going to have all those little crushes all over the place with that little blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pale-faced baby Jesus in it. Baby Jesus, according to one of my favorite books, the Holy Bible, he <laughs> had feet of bronze and kinky woolly hair. I want to see somebody have the courage to put a baby Jesus in one of those mangers that looks like the baby Jesus did. <laughs> Here we are in this so-called educated society, and we still we still take kids to church, churches all over this country with very few exceptions, and they sit there in those pews and look at that Jesus that has nothing to do with what Jesus looked like. We send them to school, preschool, kindergarten, first grade, and we teach them the colors, and we hand them a crayon that is supposedly white, and they put it against their skin. And immediately, they figure out somebody lying to me, it makes absolutely no sense, and kids know better. But it's confusing, and they trust that adults are actually providing the truth to them. And but what they learn is teachers lie, books lie, parents lie, ministers lie, doctors lie. There are no white kids on the face of the earth. There are no white people. There are only people. When we so-called white folks got here, the first people who lived here, called us pale faces. They were absolutely right. That's what we are. Why do you think that we hold so tight to these lies? Because we hold tight to these lies because nobody stands up and says, look, because we want to stay alive, number one. Nobody stands up and says, look, you've been lied to, you have, and you're lying to your children, and you're lying to your children's children, and it's time to stop the lie. My dad knew there was something wrong with what was going on, but he still said to us girls, don't be dating that one family of boys in town because their grandmother was an opteroon, and I don't want any pickaninnies in my grandchildren. And that was the only racist thing I ever heard that man say, and I realized that it was racist immediately. And so when my daughter, who married a Saudi Arabian, brought her, her daughter home and put her in his arms, he looked at that child and said, that's a good cross. She's the most beautiful child I've ever seen. When is the first time that you became aware of race? Oh, I know. <laughs> the first time I became aware of it was when I was in high school. I knew there were I knew there were different races because I I read a lot. You know, we we had a radio when we could afford the battery, but we hadn't had television yet. And I went to high school, and there was a black football player on the Manly High School football team. And my brother played football, and he said, that guy is the best athlete and the best sport I've ever seen. Everybody else said ugly things about him, but my brother said, that's not true. Leroy Dunn's a good football player. He's a good man. And I was absolutely amazed that my brother would go home and say to my dad, he's the best football player I've ever played against. He was in a different school? Yes, he was, yeah. Yep, he was in a school that was probably 40 miles from Bryceville, and they were in the same conference. And my brother, the Rice Oak School, played against the Manly School. Little high schools out in the middle of nowhere. But here was this black Leroy Dunn, my brother, my brother Sam, was absolutely in awe 
of that man's skill and talent and sportsmanship. In relation to race, I'm curious when the awareness of your whiteness came about. And I say whiteness, I'm fresh off of reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, and he talks about generalizing whiteness. So your, quote, race, when did your awareness of your race come about? I suppose it came about when my dad said, don't marry out of your race. Other than that, we didn't talk about race. It wasn't a topic that we discussed because there was no diversity on the farm in Riceville, other than among the hogs and the cattle and the different colors of the sheep and the, and the dogs. We had no reason to think about skin color because we're all, we're all alike. We all look the same. Go I on. find it really interesting because just in my experience through my interviews and oral histories, for people of color, that the awareness of race, quote, quote, is at a very early age and it's usually... It's a personal awareness. But when I have conversations with white people, the awareness is not of self. It's of another person of color. Gives me an indication that due to the nature of the notion of white supremacy and how it operates, people of color are considered racialized, whereas white people are not. I would like to hear your thoughts on it. We deliberately created the myth of white superiority in order to justify what we're doing to people of different color groups. We even created a Jesus that looked like a white person. Mm. Even though having traveled in the Middle East, in the Far East, in the Middle East, I realized that Jesus didn't look like the picture in the Methodist church behind the altar, but it looked like someone that I, a white person, could identify with. Hmm. There's so much been, power in that. There's so much weight and power and lies. And if, you, and if you start taking a kid to Sunday school when he's five or four, and you start, or you start having Christmas carols and Christmas pageants and Christmas crushes, you start conditioning a child to the myth of race from the minute he's born. A group of midwives in a city in California, called me and asked me if I would come and speak to them. And I said, why in the world would you ask me to speak to you? I don't know anything about midwifery. I had four children, but I wasn't the one who delivered them. <laughs> I wasn't the one who <laughs> produced them, but I, I didn't do the delivering. I know nothing about <laughs> medicine. And she said, you don't understand. We've, we have all worked in the delivery room. And she said, we know that black and brown women don't get the same treatment in the delivery room that white women do. So what we want to do, we want to be midwives who treat all these mothers the same. Now think about that. If you're a black woman and you go into the delivery room, you aren't sure that your child is going to be treated fairly. And if that child has a problem, the chances are pretty good that the doctor will come to you and say, your child has a problem, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep it here with us for a while. Now, I've had women tell me that that happened to their children, and they went away from the hospital without a child. Mm. Now, you see, racism starts pre-birth, prenatally, and it doesn't stop until after you're dead, because there are still cemeteries in this country where a black body can't be buried in that cemetery because it's a white cemetery. So deep. And, and I talked to, talk to a group of firefighters 
I think it was in St. Paul, Minnesota, several years ago, and there was a black firefighter there. And he said, we went to this fire, and they brought this older white woman out, and she was lying on the ground, and I bent over her to try and help her. And she opened her eyes, she sat straight up, looked at me, and said, don't let that boo put his hands on me. Had a heart attack and fell back dead. Wow. And he said, that happened because she saw the color of my skin. And she said, I felt like I had killed her. He hadn't killed her. Her ignorance killed her. That's insane. And the ignorance in this society is killing people on a daily basis. Little boys who are carrying a wooden gun across a playground get shot by a white policeman because obviously they're armed. This kind of thing is happening today. And it's happening because those policemen have never had the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise. Nobody has ever told those people that there's only one race. Nobody has ever forced those people to be treated the way people of, other, of the other color groups are treated. If we could put every policeman through the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise, a woman that I trained to do the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise is doing it in the Netherlands, in Netherlands. And the police department has hired her in several cities to do the exercise with their police ones because they need their police ones to be able to empathize with those who are other than from Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And it's working. Yeah. I watched Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes when I was in high school, I believe. And of course, it has stuck with me ever since. I personally embarked on a journey of civil rights education and social justice education. So I've delved deeply into that. And of course, your work is epic. And so I revisited your documentary. I revisited many interviews. I understand that you were a teacher in Riceville, Iowa, and you were inspired to take action after Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination on April 4th, 1968. Can you take it from there and explain how you ended up doing brown eyes, blue eyes with your students. Martin Luther King Jr. had been one of our heroes of the month in my classroom in February, and he was dead in April. And I didn't know how to explain that to my students. In April, I was doing the Indian unit. The last part of March, the first part of April, I was doing the Indian unit with my students because at that time of the year, kids want to get out of the building. They're tired of learning. They want to get out, you know, the the grass is growing, the sun's showing, and the the blood's running, and they want to go. So you have to do something exciting during that last month and a half of school. So we studied the Indian unit. And our lesson plan for the next day was to learn the Sioux Indian prayer that says, Oh, great spirit, keep me from ever judging a man until I've walked a mile in his moccasins. Now, that prayer was taught to the Native Americans by a white missionary. But it's a good prayer, even if it was taught them by a white missionary. That was our lesson plan for the next day. And I was on my way home from school with the teepee under my arm that my previous year's third graders had made. I was going to take it home, wash it, dry it, iron it and take it back to school the next day so that we could paint it with Indian symbols chosen by white people, sing Indian songs composed by white people, and read Indian poetry written by white people. And I walked in my door, my back door, and the telephone was ringing. I answered the telephone. It was my sister. She said, are your television on? I said, no. She said, you better turn it on. Why? Because they shot him. And I said, almost laughing, who would we shoot this time? And she said, Martin Luther King, Jr., And when I repeat that, I get sick to my stomach because my world stopped. For a few seconds that day, the world stopped turning for me. I was absolutely 
gobsmacked. I couldn't believe what she said. She said, turn on television. So I turned on the television, and I watched this horror on television. I fed the kids, I put them to bed, I washed and dried the teepee, I spread it out on the living room floor, and I was ironing it, watching television. And there sat Walter Cronkite, interviewing three leaders of the black community, and he said to those three black men, when our president was killed, our leader was killed, his widow held us together, who's going to keep your people in line? I thought, oh my God, how could he ask those three grieving men that question when our leader was killed? I had thought that Kennedy was the leader of all of us. But no, according to this guy, he was the leader only of white people. His widow held us in. But see, how, see how civilized we are? Who's going to keep your people in line? And until that moment, I thought that they were our, that we were all our people. I was, I was curious, so I changed the channel. And there was Dan Rather saying to three black males, don't you Negroes think you should feel sympathy for us white people because we can't feel the sorrow the anger, the anger at this killing that you Negroes can. Mm. And I couldn't understand why a human being, an adult, so-called adult human being, wasn't furious at what happened to Martin Luther King Jr. And at that point, I rolled up the teepee, I threw it into the closet, I closed the door, and I decided that not only were my students going to learn the Sioux Indian prayer the next day, I was going to arrange to have it answered for them. I had read about the Holocaust. I had known what went on during the Holocaust. And by now, I was, what, 33 years old, probably? I decided that the next morning, I was going to do what Hitler did. I was going to separate my students according to the color of their eyes. I was going to treat the people who had the wrong color eyes as we treated blacks, Jews, Native Americans. I wasn't going to do them any physical violence. But I was going to let them find out how it feels to be on the receiving end of the ignorance of being judged unfairly on the basis of a physical characteristic over which you have no control. I did not want to learn what I learned the next day when I went into my classroom and I told my students after we had discussed the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. And I could see they weren't learning anything. They weren't internalizing anything. They were just getting out of reading, writing, and arithmetic. So I finally said, do you kids have any idea how it would feel to be something other than white in this country? No. Was you like, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, would you like to do something today that will help you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. It was like we've already gotten out of spelling and handwriting. Keep this broad talk and we don't have to learn anything all day long. <laughs> Kids do it in every classroom, in every school in the United States of America. I said, okay, today we're going to judge people by the color of their eyes. And since I'm blue-eyed, and most of the students in this room are blue-eyed, brown-eyed people are going to be on top the first day. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I mean brown-eyed people are smarter than blue-eyed people. They're cleaner than blue-eyed people. They're more civilized than brown-eyed people. If you don't believe me, look at the way he's behaving. And I pointed to a blue-eyed child. I can't remember which one it was. And at that instant, those children began to exhibit all the behaviors they had learned from the significant adults in their environment for the nine years they'd been alive. In less than five minutes, they flipped from being loving, kind, caring, empathetic, cooperative little people to a superior race, the brown-eyed, and to an inferior race, the blue-eyed. And God help the green-eyed ones. We just ignored them all day. It was absolutely the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. I created a microcosm of society in my third-grade classroom for a day. After I told them that blue-eyed people aren't smart as brown-eyed people, I can still see little brown-eyed Debbie sitting in the front row looked up at me and said, how come you're the teacher here if you've got them blue eyes? And I thought, you've been hoisted on your own petard. 
you're getting exactly what you asked for. Now, what are you going to do about it? Mm. And then Alan Moss in the back row stood up and said, Debbie, if she didn't have them blue eyes, she'd be the principal of the superintendent. They're both brown-eyed. Now, he didn't know they were brown-eyed, but he had to protect his teacher, not because I was his teacher, but because I was a member of his race. And he would lie if he had to, to protect his race. Can you imagine that? So this just all unfolded within a matter of minutes. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. I watched things happen that day that I would never have believed. I pulled down the map, a roller map. The, the ring slipped off my thumb. The map went around and around and around the roller the way it does in that old, awful Excedrin commercial. And I said, well, I've done it again. And a little brown-eyed Debbie sitting there said, well, what do you expect? You've got blue eyes, haven't you? And once again, Alan Moss jumped to my defense and said, if she, oh, Debbie, her eyes ain't got nothing to do with it. You know, she never has been able to do that, right? Oh, my goodness. It was that bad. It was that bad. Carol, the Lutheran minister's daughter, came in from recess crying. I said, what's going on here? As she walked across the playground, a brown-eyed Debbie and two brown-eyed, two brown-eyed Debbies, never anyway. One of them reached up, Debbie reached up, struck her across the back with her forearm. And when Carol turned around, Debbie said to her, now you have to apologize to me for getting in my way because I'm better than you are. And so it Carol turned violent. It, it became violent. All you have to have is a leader, an educational leader or a government leader who will allow these things to go on and who will say, I could shoot somebody out in the street and I wouldn't get, a, I wouldn't get arrested for it. Whatever I did that day, I could get away with because, number one, I could teach every kid to read in that classroom. So I wasn't going to lose my job. Number two, they'd have to take my word against the kid's word. And I knew that. And I knew that what I was doing was the right thing. After I saw some of those things happen, I thought, what's happening now with these kids is going to teach them why not to behave this way in the future. I watched an interview of one of your former students who went on to be a lawyer, and he said it's seared in his memory and that it created a compass in him that lasted for the rest of his life. Um, And still does with that one and with many of the rest of them. You started with blue eyes being, quote, superior, and then you reversed it the next day, right? Right. And so what's interesting about something you said is that after the brown eyes experienced such deep discrimination on the first day, they had more compassion, even though they were given the superior title. Brown eyes were on top the first day, the first time I did it. Okay, so brown eyes were on top the first day, and then... yeah. Okay. But on, on Monday, when we reversed the exercise, I expected that the blue eyes were going to be absolutely horrendous in their treatment of those brown-eyed people. And they said they were going to. They were going to get even. And when we started the exercise, they were much less vicious to their brown-eyed peers than their brown-eyed peers had been to them. And after it was over, the next day, on Tuesday, I said to those kids, you said you were going to get even with the brown-eyed people. Why didn't you get even with them? And they said, almost in a chorus, because we found out how it feels to be treated that way, and we weren't going to make anybody feel the way we felt. Yeah. Now, people don't understand what it was about. All they do is people watch those films, and they say, how could you do that to those poor little white children for a day? And I say, wait a minute. How can you do that to black children for a lifetime? Well, I don't do it. Wait a minute. What do you do to stop it? Don't tell me you don't do it. 
somebody has said the only thing necessary for the perpetuation of evil is for good people to do nothing. Mm-mm-mm. And that's oh. exactly what we so-called good people do in this country. I watched the day those brown-eyed kids were on the top the first time I did that exercise. And this is how I, know, this is how I absolutely know it was the right thing to do. I had four, I had seven dyslexic boys in my room that year. Four of them were brown-eyed. On the day those dyslexic boys were on the top in that exercise, they read words I knew they couldn't read, and they spelled words I knew they couldn't spell. Unbelievable. And at the end of the day, yeah, it is. And people think I'm exaggerating. And then you talk to Raymond, whom you, you saw interviewed, and he was one of those dyslexic boys. And he is a lawyer. Because, as he says to this day, I found out the day I was on the top in that exercise how smart I am. And I never let anybody tell me I wasn't smart again. One of them, Rex Kozak, became a junior and senior high school principal because he was going to finish college and he was going to amount to something and he became a principal and he was a principal until about two years when he left education and started a business of his own, on his own. And to this, this day, many of those kids still say, the day I was on top, I found out how smart I was and I never would let anybody tell me I wasn't smart again. Well, it's such a grand testimony to the power of the narrative and the language and the reinforcement and just white supremacy and how it permeates our minds and our education system and all facets of life. When you go into a classroom and you pick up the social studies books and all the people in positions of power are tall white males in the pictures, and when you pick up the math book, the people in positions of power are white males in positions of power. And it tells you from day one. Oh, when I was when I was five years old, I had to read Dick and Jane. And every person in that series was white. Because so this was a white world we were living in. And as the teacher said, if you're living, if you're teaching in a classroom, in a community, don't teach in opposition to the local mores. If you're teaching in a racist community, don't teach in opposition to racism. If your community won't admit admit and don't recognize what racism is and don't admit that they got the problem mm. unless somebody comes along and says no more and we're going to put a stop to it. That's what educators are supposed to do. I saw an interview with you and they used the word experiment and you corrected them and said it was not an experiment. No, exercise for experience. When I went to Iowa State Teachers College, the lesson was for incoming teachers or for teacher trainees, you must furnish experiential learning because John Dewey said, we learn by doing. So I did a lot of things. There's a Chinese statement that says, tell me and I forget, show me and I remember, involve me and I understand. I imagine that was considered quite controversial then, and I could see it being controversial now. What was the reaction of your principal and colleagues, community, and family? My principal said, are you sure you're right? I said, yes. He said, then go ahead. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stand behind you. Don't worry about it. After, after I'd done it several years. <laughs> but but my, my mother kicked me out of the family after my father died several years later because she said, uh, you've ruined our reputation in this community. Ever since you did that blue-eyed, brown-eyed thing, nobody wants to have anything to do with this. Well, I thought, probably there's only a thousand people in this community. What's your problem? But, but it did get catapulted too- onto national TV rather quickly. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, somebody, a friend of mine, Charlotte Button, sent... I talked to Charlotte Button about what we had done the second day after I did the exercise, the third day anyway, the same week. And she sent a letter to Johnny Carson, described it, and he called and asked me if I could do the Johnny Carson show. 
And I had never been on television. I had never flown in a plane. I used my broom usually, but I had never flown in a plane. So I said, okay, we'll come in to Johnny, do the Johnny Carson show. So we did the Johnny Carson show. What was the reaction on a local and national scale? Oh, well, on the local level, I found out how typhoid Mary felt. Nobody would speak to me. I would walk through the halls of that building for the, for the next 12 years. No, nobody would speak to me. Or as I'd walk by, they'd start to whisper, and I'd know what they were whispering about. It was, it was, I had plenty of freedom to teach because nobody talked to me. I was never included in their hall conferences out in the hall. And they'd have little coffee classes after school, and they'd invite all the teachers except me. What about the parents? Uh, the parents never had a parent complain to me. Never did. Interesting. Never did. Because as one mother said, at the, the second year I did it, I did it in October. And the, the parents came for their nine weeks um, report card kind of thing, you know, parent-teacher conferences. And the, a mother came in and she sat, sat down and almost crying, said, I want to thank you for what you did for my son. I said, what would you do for your son? She said, he was always mean to his little sister. We didn't want to see him get off the bus. We hated to see him get off the bus. And she said, after he went through that blue-eyed, brown-eyed thing, when he comes home, we're glad to see him come home. He's even kind to his little sister. Thank you. Wow. You started it that year, but you kept it up for how long? Oh, I kept on doing it until I left there in 1985, and I started doing it in 1968. I did it every year except two, after we, and we had a new superintendent, and the teachers were talking about suing him because they didn't like a new superintendent, and so I didn't do it two, those two years because I didn't think he needed any more trash than he was already getting. He was getting badly trashed. But other than that, I did it every year. 20% of the parents would call in and say, don't put my kid in Elliot's classroom. Every year, somebody would call in and say, I don't like it in that nigger lover's classroom. That's what I was called then, and that is what 20% of the people in Riceville call me to this day. Wow. And they aren't going to get over it. This, you understand, this is 52 years ago. You have received death threats and all kinds of nasty letters and a lot of hate. How do oh, you my deal with that? Me. How do I deal with it? Well, I, my kids were getting treated worse than I realized until the principal's wife, who taught at the high school level, came to me during a um, workshop at the, at the elementary building and said, Jane, you've got to get your kids out of the school. These teachers are trying to destroy your children. So at that point, I found a house over near Osage where my husband was working, and we moved from Riceville. And my kids had never wanted to leave Riceville because their beloved grandfather was there and their uncle and some, you know, their cousins. But after the exercise, they were really happy to leave. So we moved to Osage. Did they but talk they're, about they're their experience, too. like what type of retaliation they were experiencing? Oh, yeah. They, they talk about the kinds of things that happened to them, but they didn't, and I didn't know how bad it was until after we moved over here and we were sitting around the kitchen table one day and we started to talk about what had gone on and they started to tell me some of the things that had happened. I said, why didn't you tell me that when it was going on? And Brian said, because we figured you were having enough problems of your own, we took care of it ourselves. Mm. Yeah. How did they respond? I mean, how did that shape their life experience, your children? Well, Sarah, Sarah has suffered from depression for years, and I think part of it is what happened to her when she was an adolescent. The rest of them are, Brian, Brian died last year of nasal pharyngeal cancer, but wouldn't come to Riceville for any reason whatsoever, because he said, when I drive down the highway through Riceville, I can feel the hair on the back of my neck rising. Mm. And I don't stop. Do you feel safe? Well, <laughs> you see, when I, I should feel worried about being killed. 
But now when I go on a college campus and I'm standing on that stage looking down at those students, there's always three of them at least sitting about the third row back with those red caps on that say, make America hate again. This is great again, but it means hate again. And there's three guys are talking and pointing at me. And I finally stop and I say, look, fellas, I know what you're talking about. You'd like to see me dead because of what I do to attempt to decrease the level of racism in this country. Now, you can kill me because you're big boys. You could do that. But I want to worry about something. If you kill me for what I'm trying to do, you might make a martyr out of me, and then you might have to celebrate Jay Elliott Day for the rest of, uh, once a year for the rest of your life. You want to do that? And then, they, you know, they put a, make a cross out of their first two fingers, and all of say, no, no, no. I say, good, then keep me alive and keep your mouth shut while I'm talking. Oh, my goodness. You are... Yeah, I don't, see, I don't care. My husband died six years ago. My son died a year ago. I would miss being with my two daughters and my other son and my grandchildren and my two great-grandchildren. But death is not something that I fear. I just think I'll pass into that other dimension, and there are things I'll never have to worry about again. If I leave this earth not having made a difference, then I've lived a useless life. You still live in the same area? I live 17 miles from Riceville, and the people in Osage avoid me like the plague. So you see familiar faces, people you grew up well, with. Well, yeah, I see familiar faces, but um, I don't see anybody who wants to be associated with me. And that's fine. That's, it's, it's too bad for Sarah. Because after she married to Saudi Arabia, moved back here with her two daughters, and she lives here in Osage. And she's a pariah, too, because she married out of her race. Do your granddaughters experience racism? They don't tell anyone what they are or who they are. They, may, they, they do what my son told me to do. He said, Mom, he lived in Texas for a number of years, and then he moved to Washington State. And both places, he said, Mom, when you come out here, maintain a low profile. I drive big equipment. I could get killed on the right way real easily. These guys wouldn't tolerate what you do. So just, just don't talk about it. Wow. Yeah. Something you said really stood out to me just kind of bringing the conversation to the present, not that it hasn't been already, but in terms of the language around anti-racism and dismantling racism, you said it's not white privilege. We need to relabel it white ignorance. That's right. Have you read the list of white privileges? A person named Peggy McIntosh. Unpacking the knapsack. Yes. Right. Unpacking the knapsack. Uh, it, It doesn't sound lovely. (laughs) <laughs> everyone, uh, practically every one of those says, I can do this, 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 and I won't be judged badly because of my race. I can do this, and I'm like, she's got, she had 24 of them, and then she found 14 more that she can do because of her race. Now, people are quoting the white privileges stuff as if it made sense. They need to realize that it's built on a faulty premise. The premise being that there's more than one race. Now, if Peggy McIntosh can do all these things and not be criticized because of it, doing them because of her race, then since we're all members of the same race, we must all have those privileges, right? (laughs) Yeah. But she has, at that time in 1987, she was convinced that there were three or four different races. And that white was a race instead of a color group. White isn't a race. White is a color group in the human race. And if you look at that National Geographic magazine and those 70 different colored people on those three pages with the color wheel number under them, you realize that those are all members of the human race. 
but different color groups. So you firmly believe that the key to dismantling racism is to adopt the truth, which is the fact that race is a lie. And from there, we can work to dismantle racism. Do you ever have moments where you have to kind of shake up people and say, no, no, we're not going to do that. This is real stuff. We're, we're not going to take away from the conversation by diverting the real issue. Like by no, saying, no, no, I know nobody you do not like the word colorblind or I don't see race. Oh, when somebody says, oh, when somebody, oh, I love to deal with that. I deal with that. I say, how many of you have ever had somebody say to you, when I see you, I don't see you black. And all the blacks raise their hand. I say, and then do you say, do you see me orange? <laughs> have you always had a problem with your eyes? <laughs> and when somebody says, but huh, well, I don't see color, I'm colorblind, I say, I knew that before, and I tell them to say this, I knew that before you told me that, because if you weren't colorblind, you wouldn't wear that shirt with those pants. I love and you sure as hell jolt, wouldn't have your hair that color. You kind of like jolt, jolt people into thinking about things differently, because it's shocking. People are, like your humor and your truth-telling is, is a great combo. What is the life of blue eyes, brown eyes today? Meaning, do you offer workshops? Are you speaking? I will do the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise, but I'll charge a fortune for it. But I'm too old for this nonsense. When's the last time you did it? Oh, Lord. Probably three or four years ago. But now when I go on, a, when I go to a small group, I do it, but they don't know they're getting it until they've had it. Somebody will ask a dumb question, and I'll say, well, now that's a blue-eyed question if ever I heard one. Maybe so, you should go and sit in the back of the room until you can think of a better question. So people don't say, oh, no, we can't do that. That's completely unethical. They don't dare because I'm the visiting expert. Uh-huh. And, I won't, and I won't permit it. I won't tolerate anybody taking my time to argue. You want to argue, go someplace else. I'm telling you the truth. If you can't stand the truth, go outside the room. You won't have to hear it. And the people but who bring you in know what they're getting. <laughs> they have no idea what they're getting. They think they're getting that sweet little old lady that they see on television. They have no idea that I'm not called old vinegar mouth for nothing. I don't have any time for this nonsense anymore. I'm not patient and accepting of racism because nobody is born a racist. There is no gene for racism or sexism or homophobia or ethnocentrism or ageism. Those are all things you have to be carefully, carefully taught. Anything you learn, you can unlearn. People could unlearn their racism if they chose to. But if they ask me to come and talk about it, I'm going to lay it out in a way that they can't deny it. Mm. Some, some black person has said denial is not just a river in Egypt. Thank denial you. is what white folks live on. I want to thank you very much for your work. No, 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 listen to me. I want to thank you for the lifetime that you've spent so far being patient with this ignorance. My, and I'm not saying this to you because you're black. My heroes are black women because they keep on keeping on in spite of everything we do to them. We kill their children. We destroy their sons. We destroy their husbands. We destroy their fathers. We use them and abuse them and refuse them. And they keep right on keeping on because they have developed coping skills that pale faces don't develop. And so do Native American women develop coping skills that pale faced women don't develop because we don't have to. Mm. Yeah. What do you want your legacy to be? 
I don't I don't care what my legacy is. What I want is uh, Victor Hugo said, "No power on earth can stop a man with a dream or an idea whose time has come." Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. We killed him. We, this society killed him. It wasn't one man. That was done by this society. But his dream is more alive now than it was when he was living. Hmm. No power on earth is going to be able to stop the idea of one race, the human race. It's an idea whose time has come. We have believed, we have been misled, M-Y-T-H led, for over 500 years. It's time to give it up now. I'm going to start using that misled. We've been misled. It's time to give it up. The Greeks for thousands of years believed that the sun was a golden chariot that flew across the sky with a, with a god in it. And they gave it up finally. Science proved them wrong. <laughs> science, has, yeah, science has proven that the idea of several different races is wrong. It's a myth. It's time to give it up. And if you haven't read the book, The Myth of Race, you better get it and read it by, by Sussman. This has gone on long enough. This has gone on way too long. It surely because has. Because by the time you're my age, white people will be a numerical minority in this country. Hmm. White people had better start now treating people fairly if they want to be treated fairly in the future. Preach, Jane. What are the roots of your spirit? What are the roots of my spirit? They're that. Hardscrabble Farm in Northeast Iowa, where my father taught me right from wrong, and where I watched my little sister at the age of three die because of poverty, and where I never saw my father cry again until he saw the blue-eyed, brown-eyed film. And then he cried and said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. I came from a man who was totally moral and totally honest, a plain, simple, brilliant human being who said a man's word is his bond. He would not tell a lie. And if I did today, if I told a lie today, I would feel guilty because I'd think dad wouldn't have appreciated that. I am what I am because of my father. That's absolutely beautiful. I just feel so honored. It's going to take me a minute to digest the fact that I just had a beautiful conversation with the Jane Elliott. How could you be, other than you are, with a mother like that? (laughs) I love freedom fighters. I love freedom fighters. And she didn't let it destroy her, and she didn't let it destroy her children, and it hasn't destroyed her yet. You want to look for you want to look for a model. You look for that one. I could never have done what she did, but she did it, and she's still doing it. Thank you so much for honoring her. Thank you. 